giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Clara Vu, co-founder and VP of engineering at Veo Robotics. Clara, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. So how did you all get started? So really, the inspiration for this company comes from um, Patrick, who's my co-founder and, and our CEO, really had the idea for this company like 10 years ago. So he was the first president of Rethink Robotics, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the first so-called collaborative robotics company in the industrial automation world. And he had his previous company was a computer vision company that did people tracking for retailers. So he, at the time, the technology wasn't really there 10 years ago mm-hmm. to do what we're doing now. But um, when he was visiting factories, actually, he always say it was at the BMW factory in Spartanburg. I think it's North Carolina, unless it's South Carolina. And that's really, I should know that. So he saw these giant robots, um, which is pretty funny because that's the name of, <laughs> yes. that's the name of your podcast. Um, we actually have giant robots in our office. You should come visit. Are they smashing and, into each other? Or, or uh, we we try not. to yeah. have that not be a thing that happens. Yeah, our goal is to keep the robots from smashing into each other or anything else. So, you know, these robots are amazing, but one of the big limitations is that they can't work closely with people because Mm -hmm. it's just not safe. Mm -hmm. Um, And having done computer vision and robotics, he had this inspiration back then that this is a perception problem. That's the right way to solve the problem. But as I was saying, the technology just wasn't available then to really make it happen. And so many years go by. And actually, I so he and I met at Rethink. I did some consulting for him. Yeah. When my other startup was fundraising. Mm -hmm. Um, So we got along and really just loved working together um, and kept in touch over the years. So then he decided, um, I guess it was like probably almost three years ago now, that this is really time to start making this happen and started looking to build a team to do it and called me up. And I was like, yeah, this is, this sounds great. You know, Mm -hmm. this is time is right. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. Let's go back a little bit further, if you don't mind. Sure. So how did you get into robotics in the first place? I got into robotics through a series of strange events, fortunate events. Um, I was a a math major in college trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life because I didn't want to get a PhD because I was pretty much done with school. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to go work on Wall Street, which was the other thing that I'd heard you could do with a math major. And I was introduced to somebody that worked at iRobot when it was a 10-person startup doing DARPA grants in the attic of the Twin City Plaza. And so I went, I, I called this guy up and I said, hey, I'm a college kid trying to figure out what to do with my life. Can I learn about what you do? And he said, sure. And I went to iRobot and I saw these people building robots and I it was completely eye-opening, life-changing, incredible experience. I remember going away thinking, I was like, I didn't know you could get paid to do this. Mm -hmm. Like engineering was not a profession that I had ever heard of, had any knowledge about, any understanding of. And it was just really incredible. And I ended up getting a job there. I got an internship writing documentation because at the time I didn't know engineering at all. Mm -hmm. Um, But I could write. Um, and they needed some documentation for their little six-legged bug robot that they were selling to um, researchers. So I wrote the documentation, and then halfway through the summer, uh, Bob Castles, the man who hired me, um, passed me a book on Common Lisp and said, here, learn to program. And I did. And the rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> it's, a long, it's a longer and convoluted story, but you know. Yeah. 
was <laughs> so much was all of the iRobot stuff in Lisp? Or was that where he was suggesting yes. to get no, started? No, that okay. was iRobot was an AI lab spinoff. Mm-hmm. And we programmed robots in a custom dialect of Lisp that uh, Rod Brooks had written at the AI lab. Mm-hmm. Me and uh, one of my colleagues, Daniel Ozick, ended up writing a different dialect of common Lisp to run on even smaller processors that is, I believe, still runs on the Roomba to this day. Hmm. So my intro to programming was pretty different, and that's given me, I think, a different perspective on programming languages mm-hmm. throughout my career because most people will start with, you know, C. Okay, back then, most people started with C or right. C++. Now people probably start with Python or JavaScript Java, yeah. or whatever. But I, I started with Lisp and assembly language. Mm-hmm. So that was an interesting intro to programming. So now at Veo... For example, what are you programming in now? We do not, sadly, (laughs) write in a custom dialect of Lisp. Um, That would be fun, but it's not really sensible these days. Um, The bulk of our code is in C++, Mm -hmm. and uh, we use a lot of Python as well. Yeah. Is that Um, fairly standard now? Yeah. I mean, basically, C++ is still the go-to language for... Well, C or C++ for embedded, which part of our stuff is, but essentially for high-performance high computing, um, computer graphics, computer vision, we're crunching a ton of data with really low latency. Mm-hmm. And so we are in one of those fairly rare these days areas of programming where you actually are CPU bound mm-hmm. and you actually do need that fine-grained level of control over what instructions are actually executing. You, you can't have layers of abstraction between you and the hardware. Right. And then the Python, where does that come in? Um, So Python comes in for um, higher level stuff, orchestration, hardware. There's a ton of, you know, software to test the software or software to test the hardware. Mm -hmm. And so we use Python for that. And, you know, visualization and graphing and um, tooling. Mm -hmm. So Veo specifically focuses on bringing vision Mm-hmm. to industrial robotics. That's right. So we take the giant robot arms that you see in videos of car factories. And what people often don't realize, because that, that's not what the videos focus on, is that those robots are incredible from an electromechanical perspective. They are mm-hmm. amazing machines. If you've built hardware, you know they run for 100,000 hours of continuous operation. They hold submillimeter tolerances. They're just amazing machines. But on the perception side, they, they basically they don't do it. They go from point A to point mm-hmm. B, and they don't They're really repetitive. care what's in the middle. Do um, they have any sort of sensors traditionally? Or? Only proprioceptive sensors, you know, okay. encoders, basically. Uh-huh. Um, but that's it. So they're they're following a precise path, and mm-hmm. they will not deviate from that path, and they will hold that path. And that's a problem if anything gets in the way of that path. Right. Um, so typically, the robots are literally kept in cages um, to prevent. <laughs> and it's uh, it's not to prevent the robots from escaping. The robots are bolted to the floor, and they can't think, so they wouldn't try to escape. But it's to prevent anybody from getting close enough to get hurt. They're yeah. basically considered dangerous equipment, just like a you know a stamping press or mm-hmm. um, something else. So that basically severely constrains the tasks that the robot can be used for, that they can only be used for processes that can be completely automated, and not just that can be automated, but that it's cost-effective to completely automate. Right. So most people that use these large industrial robots would really love to have collaborative applications, processes where people do part of the work, robots do part of the work, but the robots are too dangerous, they can't do that. Mm-hmm. So our system brings perception and intelligence to those robots so that they can work collaboratively with people. Yeah, so that's that's what Veo does. We have custom time of flight sensors 
and basically an industrial version of a giant gaming computer mm -hmm. um, that can crunch all that data in real time and override robot controls to keep them safe. Are you delivering both hardware and software? Mm -hmm. And then is the hardware augmenting existing robots that are Yeah, in the market? so the robots themselves, as I was saying, they are exquisite. They do exactly what they want. They're really wonderful pieces of equipment, and they're very multi-purpose, and they have lots of interfaces. So we looked at the market, and we said, these robots are great. There's no reason for us to build the mechanical hardware. The robots have a controller that does excellent trajectory control and path planning. Again, predetermined path planning, not mm -hmm. real-time path planning, but that's typically what you want in a factory. You want your systems to do exactly what they're supposed to do over and over again. So I'll describe it as it's two-thirds of a robot from an autonomous robotics perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll talk about there's perception, there's intelligence, and there's actuation. So we're doing that perception and intelligence part, and the actuation is coming from a third party. Mm -hmm. And that's very that, that fits in very nicely with the way that entire industry is structured, because when you have a robot in your factory... That robot you will buy from a robot manufacturer. That is a six degree of freedom arm. It doesn't even have an end effector. It doesn't have a gripper or anything on mm -hmm. the end. It can't do anything by itself. And what will happen is a systems integrator who operates kind of like a general contractor putting together a kitchen and mm -hmm. you know buying the stove from one place and the countertops from somewhere else and the fridge from somewhere else. They'll buy a robot from KUKA or FANUC and they'll buy a, they'll usually custom make an end effector for the specific application. They'll buy sensors from, you know, a vision system from Cognex and some safety fences from Pills and they'll put that together with conveyors and other fixed automation and builds what ends up being the manufacturing work cell. So our system fits right into that ecosystem that it's a piece that you can put together to build the mm -hmm. process flow that you want to build. But it essentially, unlike a lot of those other pieces, our system enables automation of processes that were not formally capable mm -hmm. of being automated. Mm -hmm. You mentioned safety when we were first starting to mm -hmm. talk a lot. Is that one of the primary sort of like jobs to be done first that customers are coming to you for? They're not coming to us because they need safety. They are very safe today. Yeah. So the industry actually has an excellent safety record, and mm -hmm. every single plant that we go to is very, very concerned with making sure that, that the systems are safe and remain safe. They're looking to us for productivity increases. Right. Um, they're looking and to maintaining be, that level of to safety be able as you to, do Right. It. So the safety okay. is kind of the baseline. It's got to yeah. be there. Yeah. Um, and we're building our product to be compliant with the ISO standards for industrial automation, which are very clear about safety. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want to, you know, we want to work within that framework, and it's critical that our product is safe. But some people have, have asked me, you know, is the problem that there are all these accidents, they're trying to prevent accidents? Mm -hmm. Like, no, they're actually very safe today, but the way they achieve safety is by saying nobody ever gets anywhere near the robots. <laughs> right. So it's very restrictive. So they're looking for a way that is still safe, but that can give them more flexibility yeah. and productivity. So how much work had you done with these kinds of robots before starting Veo? Zero. Okay. Um, yeah, absolutely none. I guess Rethink was the closest I had come, and that's really a quite a different type of robot. Most of my career has been in autonomous mobile robotics. Right. Um, so I was actually a little worried when Patrick first started talking to me about this that, you know, it would be boring because the robots don't move around. I used to like to say I'd never written code for something that couldn't run away from me. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that um, well, one thing is that there's six degrees of freedom in these arms, mm -hmm. and since and we're doing 3D sensing, so 
Mobile robotics is primarily a 2D problem. There's a little bit of Z, but you can pretty much ignore it. Mm -hmm. um, so 3D problems, the math gets a lot cooler. Mm -hmm. um, the the kinds of uh, so in some the ways there's actually more algebra. movement than yes. you were doing before, yes, even though actually, they don't mm -hmm. technically move around. Yeah, and that's something where, like for example, the some people have asked us, you know, well, don't people have to solve this problem for autonomous driving? And not really. They're solving mm -hmm. a 2D problem, first of all. And second of all, the answer to dealing with people as an autonomous car is just don't get anywhere near them. Mm -hmm. So being able to be essentially closely intertwined with people in a 3D space but never touching the people, it's actually a very complicated, basically geometric problem. So what stage are you at as a product and as a company now? Mm -hmm. So we are deep in the middle of new product development. Um, so we raised our Series A last fall. Um, we were four people then. I think we're 23 now, um, which has been a whirlwind, mm -hmm. as I'm sure you can imagine. And um, we're looking to be releasing a beta version of our product next year. So we are right in the middle of making those, you know, that concept and the prototype into a real product. Mm -hmm. So how are you spending your time now? The bulk of my time? Yeah. Combination of continuing to grow the team. Mm -hmm. um, you know, recruiting is ultimately the most important thing that, that I do um, is finding the right people and running the engineering team. Um, mm -hmm. And that now that means I'm directly managing the software team now that we're looking to change that. But, uh, you know, we have hardware, we have software, we have integration and robotics. So that's everything from discussing the finer points of our Git workflow and how we make that compliant with uh, functional safety requirements and going to a customer site to look at applications and, and figure out which applications we want to target for that early product release. You know, working with the hardware team to figure out how we're going to bring up the new test fixtures for the sensing that we've got our first boards in. So all of the things. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to hiring and building a team, is that something that you've done before? I've done some of that before. Mm -hmm. um, not at the scale not that I'm doing now. Not from scratch and not uh, from Well, the... I have done oh, it okay. from scratch. Between iRobot and this company, I was a co-founder of a company called Harvest Automation, which did mobile robots for agricultural automation. Mm -hmm. So um, I was one of the founders there and, and built up the team. But my focus there was software exclusively. So mm -hmm. it was a little more, it was a little narrower. Mm -hmm. And the company, we just didn't grow as fast. So taking that experience and broadening it to all of engineering and accelerating the pace significantly, that has been a, a big difference there. Mm -hmm. um, but luckily, I've discovered that the one thing I really don't know how to hire for is um, web developers, mm -hmm. because even though it's all nominally software, I've discovered I can read an electrical or mechanical engineering resume like way better than I can read a uh, a web developer resume, mm -hmm. because I've been working with electrical, you know, I've been, I write software, but I have been working with electrical and mechanical engineers my whole career and very closely tied into the kinds of work that entails and the skills that are yeah. involved, whereas um, there's this entire world of software that is really, really foreign to me. Uh -huh. um, so the, what are you hiring? Website. What are the web developers on your team doing? Um, well, right now we don't have any. Okay. Um, <laughs> but we've been focused on the core algorithms, but we're mm -hmm. going to be building um, a user interface yeah. for both the people that directly interact with the robot, the line workers, and then also for the systems integrators to configure mm -hmm. the system. And we're pretty sure that that's going to be web-based. Mm -hmm. As you sort of expand your, your scope, as a, as a manager, as a leader, you know, hiring people for things that you personally don't do yep. um, is, is a different, a, 
So now that you've uncovered that area, mm-hmm. what have you done to try to to solve that? Um, actually, the same thing I do for every time I have a, a thing that's new is I go find, like, this was what we did. When you we learn did. it all yourself. Exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I took a course. No. I start talking to everybody I know, and I say, you know, who do you know that's good at this thing? And then I call people up, and I say, will you, you know, can I take mm-hmm. you out for coffee? I'm not trying to hire you or anything. I just want to learn. And, um, you know, that's what we did when, because I never worked in a regulated industry before. Mm-hmm. So um, when it became clear that that was going to be a critical part of, of building this product, you know, called up everybody I knew and everyone that I get them to introduce me to people that they knew that, that worked in that area. Um, and then you start building knowledge and a profile of what you're looking for and just start getting familiar with other areas. Beyond the the sheer like technical requirements that you have for the jobs, in terms of thinking about building the kind of team that you want to have, what mm-hmm. are some of the things that you've taken into consideration as you've gotten and um, done that? That's been absolutely critical for us. And one thing is that my the, all three of us as co-founders, um, Patrick and myself, as I said, one of the things that kept us in touch over all those years was we had very similar ideas about, you know, how we wanted to work, what kind of company, you know, we would want to work for, like what's important. Um, and Scott Denenberg, who's our other co-founder, chief architect and the head of our hardware group, similarly just shared beliefs about I think there's a, there's a number of things. I mean, one of the things that's very important to us is we call it sort of first principles thinking, being able to take things all the way down. You know, we build very complex systems and being able to under you need to be able to think at the high level, but then be able to understand what's going on under that and what's going on under that and what's going on under that, you know, all the way down to the lowest level. Um, and then, you know, the way that we want to treat each other, um, mm-hmm. to be respectful of each other's concerns, time, thought processes, abilities, and we, we have kind of joked that we're, we're like this, a startup for grownups. Mm-hmm. Um, many of us, actually a, a, a significant portion of our team, I have to do a count at some point, ha- have young kids. I have not so young kids now. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think you learn, and you know, this isn't for both Patrick and myself, not our first rodeo. You know, we've done this before and that by no means means we won't make mistakes because <laughs> everybody makes mistakes. But you learn things like, you can make something happen on Tuesday that would have otherwise taken till Friday by working, you know, late nights and weekends, but you can't take a product that was going to ship in September and, and make it ship in May by working nights and weekends. So you have to respect the work um, and what it takes to get it done. So I think we've really looked for people that have those qualities. And also the thing that uh, is critical, is because it's still a startup, is self-direction. Mm-hmm. And being able to change quickly when you need to, you know, this is something that if you have a big company, you know, you can say, well, here's the thing we're doing and we know what it is. We're going to hire people that are specialists in this one thing and have them do that. And um, with us, it's like, well, this is the thing we need to do this week. And no, we don't have any specialists in this thing. Mm-hmm. So you and you figure out how to do this thing. Mm-hmm. Or people will figure it out themselves and they'll come to me and say, OK, I think we need to do X, Y and Z. Mm-hmm. Like. Sounds great. Make it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's got to be true for yeah. any startup company. It seems like the combination, though, of what was the word you used about going down the levels all the way to the... Uh, yeah, first principles, or right. I'd say sort of right. very rigorous. Right. But also being able to be agile and to change yeah. and to learn new things yeah. is probably a difficult combination. Yeah, I would say it's, it's a tricky balance because mm-hmm. um, that rigor, especially because, you know, we do need to be 
compliant with a, a regulatory system. So we also need to have, you know, a documented process and, you mm-hmm. know, thorough code reviews and these. So, yeah, you need to balance rigor and agility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got you to look hard. There's some companies and in the past we've at ThoughtBot talked about this as well as sort of the idea of a T-shaped individual. Oh, yeah, I've heard that, the, like, mm-hmm. broad and deep right. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, so it's not yeah. a specialist because right. it, well, I guess it's a broad specialist. It's like we have a you web developer. You have at least one specialty, right, but then right. you also can, right. yeah, 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 no, I think that's probably And a over time, the, you know, the thing you go deep on may shift over yeah. time. Like, that's, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and the other thing I think is important is that you look at the whole team. Mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't an individual that is great at all the things. That's just not the way humans work. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really look uh, across the team and you want a team where people have complementary strengths. Have most of the people that you have ended up hiring, has it been through recruiting efforts or just word of mouth or people you knew or yeah, um, all of the, the above? All of the above. A lot of, uh, you know, it's, that is one advantage to having been in the business for a while is that you, you learn a lot, you know, a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely some people that each of us had worked with before or people that they, you know, referred us to. A couple folks from networking events and connections of connections and then some people that just you know read about us and thought it sounded cool and and looked us up and found us Mm -hmm. um so it's all of the above but i mean it's definitely it is a very tight hiring market and just about everybody that i talk to is saying the same thing it's really hard to find good people and there are no magic bullets you Mm -hmm. just have to as an engineer recruiting is incredibly frustrating because with most engineering work like there's some relationship that you can you can extrapolate between amount of effort that goes in and the right. results that come out. Mm-hmm. And and recruiting, it's like you could work your butt off for like months and not find somebody. And then you could have a five minute conversation in line at a coffee shop mm-hmm. um, that ends up landing your you know great next hire. And, yeah. and it's just uh, to the extent that I understand this, because it's not it's outside of, of my expertise, but it's, you know, it's like a sales funnel, right? Mm-hmm. There's some number yep. of possibilities and then you know mm-hmm. some of those will turn out to be reasonable and then some of those will turn out to be um, the right ones and are you building a team local to here in Boston or distributed yes, almost all local the engineering is all local our VP sales is actually remote um, mm-hmm. she's also uh, Molly McCarthy someone that Patrick had worked with before and she's completely phenomenal and sales of course is also a very you're all over the place anyway mm-hmm. so that's worked out just fine having her be you know, mm-hmm. she she visits us a lot, but based remotely. But engineering, I mean, for one thing is that most of our people have to work with giant robots on a regular basis. So it's kind of hard put those to at your do house. that remotely. Yeah, you really can't install one in your basement. Um, mm-hmm. And just a lot of what we do is also very interdisciplinary and interconnected. Mm-hmm. So as opposed to having one thing that the team is general, that's also been another trick when hiring is I'm not trying to hire, you know, five of anything. Like mm-hmm. almost every person on our team has a different specialty. You know, we have a robot automation engineer who used to build automotive production lines. And we have people who worked on custom sensing in um, aeronautics and defense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then we have people who worked on computer graphics and computer vision and networking. It's, and so those people need to be able to work together and they don't necessarily share a common language. So if you then add actual physical separation to that, mm-hmm. I don't know, I think it would just become intractable. Yeah. As you've gotten started and, and progressed, what has surprised you? I think the sheer number of different things Um, Mm -hmm. that you have to think about and manage over the course of a day. So going from a co-founder who ran a software group 
to a co-founder that's you know running engineering um, and also having a fair amount of external responsibilities. There's just a lot of things, mm-hmm. and balancing all those things is um, tricky. Well, so I don't presume that you have it figured out, but like, what are some of the tools or techniques that you try to use to stay on top of everything? I rely a lot on on my coworkers and my co-founders in particular, mm-hmm. um, just people that I can trust implicitly and go to with anything and get feedback from and and advice and just bounce ideas off. I think that that's really what I what I've done. I mean, I know that there we have some other folks and actually that was one thing that hiring a program manager who's very operationally focused was an early priority for us because you know, that's that's not my strength. Um good with the big ideas and making connections between disparate areas and the details of the, um, you know, complex engineering projects. And really, you need that operational strength as well. So as I was saying before, like, nobody's good at all the things. Mm -hmm. Um, You, again, have to look at at the team and build a team that are strong where you're weak and can basically back each other up. Mm -hmm. Are you like a to-do list person or no? Nope. (laughs) I do. I mean, I have to. I do. I have my you know, Google Calendar with all uh-huh. the things, and I try to actually stick to that. But uh, no, I'm I'm definitely not one of those people who has you know, oh, here's how I finally organize my time and keep all the things exactly in in mm-hmm. order and and know what's what. It's um, it's a lot of it's just by instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have an instinct for what's important, what needs my time, and and then go from there. Well, I think oftentimes in a startup environment. You have to be flexible anyway. Yeah. You know, there's, mm-hmm. like you said, things change, can change on a daily yeah. or weekly mm-hmm. basis about what the goals or priorities are. Yep. Staying flexible as a person and as a team, I think, is important. Yeah. So, no, I think that's uh, definitely a thing where I, I sometimes feel, you know, you feel like, oh, I should be one of those hyper organized people. And then just at some point recognizing, you know, I'm, 40-something. I'm not going to become wonderful at something that I've never been particularly strong at. I have to accept that the thing that I'm good at is the big picture, the inspiration, making connections between things that weren't there before, Mm -hmm. um, both internal connections, external connections, new ideas, helping basically create a a bright light for the team to to focus on and then bring in people who have complementary strengths. You mentioned that you hadn't worked in a regulated industry before. Mm-hmm. So have there been any surprises or, or challenges about working in a regulated industry um, for this? I think it's definitely challenging. Mm-hmm. And that is, as I said, that's one of the things that we went out and, and learned about um, early on. And um, one of the things that's been very interesting to me, actually, though, is that a lot of the things that are required you know, by the functional safety standards that were you know, written 20 years ago in by a German bureaucracy is that they've kind of come full circle and and lined up in many ways with good modern software development practices. Hmm. So like coding standards and static analysis tools, um, Mm -hmm. having excellent unit test coverage, having code reviews, continuous deployment. Mm -hmm. These are all things that actually fit. The details can be hard to get right, but conceptually they they fit very well into that that framework. So that's something that I found very interesting. That's good. but then the, the challenge is to actually put together the specific tools in a way that, that works and makes sense. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, basically our society has come up with ways to do engineering in dangerous situations mm-hmm. um, collectively. And, and the, the specifics vary, but the big picture concepts are the same, whether it's aerospace or 
medical device or functional safety, which is the regulatory framework that that we fit under. And um, they all have basically these, they have these common threads that where you're you're documenting what you're doing, you're following a process, you are reviewing each other's work, you're doing FMEAs, thinking about what could possibly go wrong, and then making systems to address FMEAs. that. Sorry, uh, failure mode and effects analysis. Okay. This is where you systematically go through a design and look and think about how could this possibly break, mm-hmm. um, and then make sure that you have mitigations for all of those things. Is that for software and hardware? Yeah. And, and so those common threads are, as I said, kind of how we have figured out how to move forward with doing engineering under critical systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a discipline that we are, are learning, are executing. And, um, and when we bring people on, it's part of, you know, they, people know what they're getting themselves into. Mm-hmm. You know, people buy into it from the beginning. Sounds like you probably have a mix of some people who have worked in that environment before and yep. others who haven't. That's right. Yeah. Um, and actually, when we've actually hired a couple people out of the medical device industry because there's just a lot of people locally who have worked. Mm-hmm. That is a regulated environment that there's a lot of engineers in the Boston area mm-hmm. that have have worked in that environment, and they've found that it's um, it's not identical, but it's very it's similar mm-hmm. kind of systematically. And I mm-hmm. think um, one of the challenges, and we see this a lot when you see. Again, with the autonomous driving and uh, people trying to take the sort of the move fast and break things mm-hmm. universe and, and then applying it in these safety critical systems. And that pretty much doesn't work. Um, I think you really do have to have an attitude of, of rigor and building, building in quality and thinking about the possible consequences of the systems you're building. And also, all of the things being equal, a simpler system is likely to be safer. So whereas I know a lot of software is targeted now at everything being dynamic, Mm -hmm. you know, dynamically reconfigurable systems, and our focus is sort of the opposite. It's whenever possible, we want things to be static. We want Mm -hmm. things to go exactly the same way every time um, because we all know that if it's predictable, then it's much easier to reason about and debug and ensure it's, Mm -hmm. it's safe. You mentioned um, you have a lot of giant robots, and that <laughs> makes it hard to work remotely. And But is there any technology or methodology for virtualization or simulation before you're going onto the robot? Um, so we're actually building out simulation capabilities. Mm-hmm. They're starting to build this again in... For, I've seen a couple companies doing this for autonomous cars yeah. for building simulated environments, but no one does this as a pre-existing here you can buy it or use it thing for industrial automation. In fact... We have right now three out of the four big robot manufacturers, and only one of them has even an emulator for their robot controller where we can develop our interfaces offline. The other ones, you, you want to talk to the robot, you talk to the robot. Wow. So, yeah, there really isn't anything that exists. We're at, so we're looking to build that, sort of build some simulation capabilities in-house. We're actually early in this effort, but we're looking at using um, Unreal you know, gaming engines, yeah. which solve a not exactly but similar problem. Mm-hmm. And, and simulation helps you to a point. You have to always be aware that it's not the real world and right. there's never going to be a complete simulation that finds all of the issues. But my experience is that if you're cognizant of what kinds of issues you can find in simulation, it can be a valuable tool in your development toolkit. Everything you just said also applies to like the iOS development simulator. Like, oh, <laughs> it's, it's really? Just, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Yeah, I guess at some point you've it's still pure digital, but you've got enough stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Or if you've got, I guess, speech input, then you have real analog signals coming in. Right. Yeah, that's one thing that is I think very different about robotics, especially autonomous robotics, and a lot of other fields is that you. 
you're closing the loop with the analog world. So you are sensing an analog, but you're also taking actions that then impact what your sensors see. Mm-hmm. So to actually build that system, you know, you don't know what the sensor data is going to look like until you've written the algorithm that reacts to the sensor data and makes the thing move. So it's this sort of chicken and mm-hmm. egg problem mm-hmm. during development, and it's, uh, it can be hell on your development timelines. <laughs> so practically speaking, give me a, an idea of, so we have the robot, and you already said it's in a cage. Mm-hmm. And you're providing, you said, essentially uh, another computer mm-hmm. and cameras. Mm-hmm. So where do those, do they go separate from the robot or are they attached to the robot? Or? Um, right. So they're distributed around the robot work cell. They're okay. not attached to the robot essentially for the same reason that your eyeballs aren't on your fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to have a, a view of the entire work cell. And it's also if you put a sensor on a thing that's moving, you've made your problem even harder. Mm-hmm. But um, so generally you and also the robot is typically not the only dangerous thing in the work cell. Right. So being able to see the entire work cell is is really valuable. And then those sensors are running to the control box, which then is right next to the robot controller. And then the idea is that what our system lets you do is is get rid of the cage. Mm-hmm. So you can have a robot that's operating without being caged off from other people and the rest of the environment. Mm -hmm. And that's everything from being able to have a robot hold, for example, an instrument panel while a person uh, attaches a wiring harness. Um, There's no robot in existence that can attach a wiring harness, um, nor probably will there be for Mm -hmm. decades. To you have exception handling. You have a case where it's mostly um, automatic operation, but when problems happen, right now it's a five-minute shut down the whole system, tag out situation, and the recovery time is really critical is having someone be able to just jump in, fix something and jump out. Cases where you have a, let's say you ha- we have a, a robot, a polishing cell where they're making trim parts where you want to polish these things with a robot, but there are a wide variety of parts. This is for a, a customer that's a tier one automotive supplier. And so while polishing a different program for a different part is pretty straightforward, easy for them to do, robotic uh, automatic parts feeding and fixturing would be completely prohibitive, would never make sense. And so they want a person to essentially unbox and fixture the parts and then the robot to polish them. Mm -hmm. So there's all these kind of trade-off tasks where you basically want the people to do the stuff that people are good at, which involves dexterity and flexibility and judgment, and then the robots to do the things that require strength and speed and precision Mm -hmm. um, and be able to kind of interleave those Mm -hmm. seamlessly. So this next question might be getting into the area where like you can't answer or something okay. like that. But like when I say cameras and you say yes, is that just normal cameras or do, uh, is yeah, there no, lots of other sensors? Um, those, those, no, they're custom time of flight cameras. Mm-hmm. So time of flight is a variant of a depth camera. So you have a pixel matrix like you would in a RGB camera, but instead of a color, you get a depth. Basically, how far is it to the nearest object along that particular ray? of the camera. So there's a variety of techniques for pulling 3D data out of 2D images, but none of them are things you would want to trust your life to. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas there's actually a long history of using active ranging sensors in safety applications like LiDAR. Time of flight's a little different because it, um, rather than being a a singulated beam that then rotates, you're illuminating the whole space. And then each pixel gives you a depth along that ray. Mm -hmm. And the chipsets that we're using are are commercial chipsets that are used in other applications. But typically the cameras that are packaged around those chipsets are focused on things like gesture recognition, which is generally near field 
and also not safety critical. So our cameras build in a number of features that give them, us the reliability that we need for those systems and also increased range, lower latency, and uh, orchestration among multiple cameras to uh, eliminate interference. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a custom camera. There, it's, it's a single sensing modality. Um, that's, that's actually an interesting thing. People often feel like adding more sensing modalities makes a system safer because you think, oh, well, the failure modes of these different systems will be different. And there is definitely truth to that. And you can build safety that way. But in my experience, complexity is the killer more often than anything else. Mm -hmm. And so adding multiple sensing modalities vastly increases the complexity of the system. Um, So our initial system is focused on a single sensing modality that we have designed very carefully to have well-defined and well-understood failure modes that we can detect and respond to. Mm -hmm. You alluded to this a little bit earlier, is that you have customers or people who want to be your customers now, and you're looking and saying, what are we going to do for them? Yeah, this is one of the things that Patrick and I actually bonded over at, at Rethink many years ago is we both believe very strongly that you need to be very closely engaged with your customers at the earliest stages of product development. You know, we don't do stealth. We, we tell everybody mm-hmm. what we're doing because that's how we get really good feedback. We've built customer relationships even though we don't have a product to sell yet. The industry really wants this technology. Um, and we knew this, but even so, we've been overwhelmed by the amount of interest that we get and customers that you know, they come to us and we're like, look, we don't have a product, but we want to work with you. We want to set up these engagements. And what we've been doing is we've been taking um, our prototype system and doing uh, an engagement where a customer, we work on an application together and then we actually go to a test lab at the customer site and set up our system, run it in their lab, let them actually see how it works and let us see how it works in their environment and in their application. And then we take it all back home. And we've been basically oversubscribed. We've been having to tell people, no, sorry, we can't do a test with you, even though this is a really interesting customer and a really interesting application. But there's only so many interactions our team can actually support and still do anything else at the same time. Yeah. So at this point, assuming that you're driving towards beta, you probably have a list of those things and it's relatively settled at this point. Of who those customers are? No, of the things that you can you're going to do. Yes, like the, yeah, we've the got a schedule. You're have yeah, for we've, beta. we're pretty clear on where we need to go at this stage. Mm-hmm. But we're continuing to do those customer trials as we go forward because there's value to them both from engineering and then of course um, from sales and marketing to have people become more familiar with the product. And many of those are those customers that we're doing these development trials with right now will then become our beta mm-hmm. customers. And you mentioned earlier. You made the comment you're running the whole team now and you hopefully won't be doing that. Oh, just that, you know, it was because, as I said, my specialty is software. And so at first, you know, the first thing you want to do when you raise your your round and you need to start, you need to hire engineers who are going to build the things. And then we had in the plan from way back that um, we're looking for a director of software to then, you know, report to me and Scott has the hardware side and mm-hmm. we'll, because it's just the, the day-to-day operations of the software team is just, there are only so many hours in a yeah, day. Yeah, there are only so many hours um, in a day. So, so that, you know, you is that a position that, that you have open and that you're looking for Yes, now? absolutely. So people should go to our website and apply for it. Are there other things? Like what? what is the biggest needs that you have a company as a company um, now? Is it hiring? Yeah, all the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're hiring a director of software. We're hiring more electrical engineers. We're hiring more software engineers. We're hiring an automation controls engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, so if people want to see those positions, we can link it in the show notes. But where where, where should people go? Oh yeah, go? it's veobot.com is our website, yeah. and then there's a jobs page Great. there that links to all that. 
Good. Well, I wish you and your team and the company all the best. And you have a very exciting product in an area that I know nothing about. <laughs> but you have a podcast called Giant Robots. So you, why? Why is it named Giant Robots? The, the story is actually really funny. And um, so ThoughtBot got mm -hmm. started. And a little while after that, when we were thinking about starting a blog, mm -hmm. we said we need a cool name for our blog. <laughs> And someone suggested giant robots smashing into other giant robots. And that was the band name of someone that we went to college with. That's, and so that's we perfect. emailed them and yeah. said, like, could we use this name for our blog? He's like, yeah. And so that's how it got started. So it has nothing to do with anything. With anything. Except we just thought it was a cool name. That's, uh, that's great. So if people want to follow along with you or get in touch with you, how can they best do that? LinkedIn. It's probably traditional. And uh, the company is, like I said, veobot.com. And I'm sure there is a, a sign up on that as well. Cool. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, do me a favor and tell a friend about it. It really helps. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. I'm Derek. I'm Sean. And, and we, we host, host The Bike Shed. Shed. We talk about the projects. Sometimes we read code. It's very exciting. <laughs> the people. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Vitae. Hi, Olivier. Thanks for coming on, Sandy. And everything else that influences our lives as developers. Oh, like speed dating, but yes, for exactly. employers. Yes, and I was pretty sure it was going to be bad. And was it? It was bad. So join us every Friday on, on the, the Bike, Bike Shed. Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.